Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Hebrews. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 11 again this morning, verses 8 through 22. It's page 1007 in the Bible provided for you. I'll be out of town at a family wedding in Indianapolis next week, and this exact time next week, preaching at the church where my brother is a preaching pastor, Zionsville Fellowship in Indiana. If you ever move to the Indianapolis area or are commending a church to someone in that area or are traveling through yourself, go to my brother's church, Zionsville Fellowship. I'll greet them on your behalf. Well, where are you looking this morning? Where are the eyes of your heart gazing? Inward? Maybe backward or upward and ahead. This morning's passage will help us to look upward and ahead. Hebrews 11, 8 through 22. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. All these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and who had received the promises And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Well, here's an obvious observation, two observations at the head of this sermon. First, we have repetition. By faith, by faith, By faith. This book, the book of Hebrews, is concerned that you and I would believe on the Lord Jesus and not stop. 
These are examples. We're looking back in the story of the Bible to those who, by faith, walked with God, obeyed in this way or that. Not merely obeyed, but by faith went out, by faith obeyed one thing or another. Repetition. Another observation, and this one is not as obvious, it's become more obvious to me in study and prep for these last two weeks, that there is progression in this chapter. The whole of Hebrews chapter 11 is a catalog of Old Testament characters in order that they appear in the Bible who exhibited faith in the promises of God. And you'll remember last week how we defined faith. Take a look at the very beginning of Hebrews chapter 11 with me. We use these first two verses for our purposes here to define faith this way in two ways. First, faith is seeing God and his promises for the future. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Oh, but later he'll say that this character saw God as faithful and he was looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promises. So while we don't see with our eyes, with the eyes of our heart, we do see what God has promised to us. And it's as sure or more sure than the things we see with our physical eyes. Faith is seeing God and his promises for the future. Well, verse 2, for by it, by faith, the people of God received their commendation. We said that secondly, faith is how we receive God's approval and his promises in the future. We lay hold of those promises by faith. And by trusting in God's promises, we actually receive the commendation of God. We're credited righteousness. We're called righteous by faith, not by works. Not by obedience, but by faith in the promise and word of God. And in the course of this chapter, we watch unfold the story of the Bible through the prism of faith, through various characters. And and last week, three characters, Abel and Enoch and Noah, and we saw a repeated refrain of commendation, commended as having pleased God, commended as righteous, commended. What's interesting is once we get into the Abraham story, I was really expecting to hear commended as righteous because that's the big moment in Abraham's life when he believes and God credits that to him as righteousness. But in fact, we don't see it mentioned at all in Abraham's story and we won't see the word commended or as righteous until the very last line of chapter 11. Which leads me to think the author has not left that theme behind. He has emphasized that in the first three characters of the Bible, for whom maybe that wasn't so obvious, but no, he he considered them righteous by faith. And now, moving into the Abraham story, well, obviously he was counted as righteous, as Genesis says, but now something else will be emphasized. And whereas... In the previous three characters, uh, the emphasis was on what those characters received by faith, the commendation, the heavenly commendation they received. Now, in this story of Abraham, the emphasis moves to future things, to the heavenly country that they anticipate receiving by faith. We move from what we have received by faith 
the righteousness of God, and that is for all who believe, for you and for me, trusting in Jesus' perfect righteousness, we stand before God righteous on account of Him. We move from the theme of what we have received by faith now to what we will receive. Now we're talking about things we haven't received yet, and we're looking at characters who believed, looking forward to things they had not received and did not receive in this life. And if we had a bit of a hard time relating with Enoch or with Noah, such distant characters, oh, these characters may feel closer to home. For for their circumstances are a little bit like ours. For we lay hold of promises and look forward to promises that we have not received and Lest Jesus comes before we die. We will die, we pray, believing. So we move now into Abraham's story. And really, Abraham's story is this whole section. You'll know we move into Jacob and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. But that's all the book of Genesis and those are Abraham's children. Verses 8 through 12 of Abraham's story, and then it picks back up in verse 17. You'll notice verses 13 through 16, there's an interlude. And this is one reason why I think that this matter of the future and what faith sees way down the road, even afar, is the emphasis in this passage, because this interlude, which is a bit of a pause in the Abraham story, emphasizes with great pains and repetition that very matter. Listen for it. All these died in faith. That is Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, and and Joseph did too. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. See that future direction? If they had been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So let's start off with this question. What is our homeland like? What is our homeland like? As you think of the Old Testament story, you may think, oh, Abraham, he was looking for a plot of land, Canaan, whereas we are looking forward to a heavenly land, but that is apparently not the case. Through hints that the author has picked up on, and the author is inspired, he's indicating that Abraham was looking beyond that plot of land. He discerned and knew that God was about doing more than creating a people and giving a people a place in time, but he was doing something for all of humanity, for the whole world. All those who receive that promised son of Abraham by faith would be inheritors of that promise. What is our homeland like? Well, a few things. Let's mine this interlude before we get into Abraham's story. Let's mine this middle section uh, at the beginning. Well, in the first place, it's future. All these died in faith, having not received things promised. They greeted them from afar. If Christianity promises what you and I know in this life here and now, well, that is not quite enough, is it? And yet, if, 
if this is all that it can do good on, then it overpromises because Christianity, Jesus and the scriptures promise perfect peace and a, a forever rule of a righteous king, and we're not seeing and experiencing that now. No, as Christians, we don't meet today because God has brought everything that he's promised into fruition now in full, but because we look forward to the future fulfillment, a heavenly city. Heaven has dawned in the church, but there is a future heavenly country, heavenly city that we await for, and that's really good news. We come every Sunday to be reminded and encouraged that this is not all that there, there is. We are not living for this world, and thank God there's more to God's plans than this world. It's future. Uh, it's also familiar. They've acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That means they didn't belong here. And friend, if you're in Christ and you have believed on Jesus savingly, you are a stranger and an exile in this world. And young people growing up under the preaching of the gospel, that is a great place to be, and you should thank God for that. And you should consider, am I a stranger in this world? Am I an exile here? Am I at home in this world? Am I living for this world as I think of my future? Work hard at school, work hard at work, develop skills of one kind or another, and enjoy all the gifts that God has given you. But are you living for this world only? And if so, Look to Jesus, who did not, and calls us to be strangers and aliens here, exiles. Because our future, because we live for a future heavenly city, we are strangers and exiles here in a foreign land. Jacob and Isaac and Abraham lived in tents, and spiritually speaking, we live in tents here. This is a tent we've set up. It's future, it's familiar, it's familiar in the sense that that is home and this is not. We have a a greater taste for and a sense of belonging with that future place we have not been than we do this place where where we have. It's future, it's familiar, it's forever. People who speak thus make clear they're seeking a homeland if they'd been thinking of the land from which they'd gone out. They would have returned, but they desire a better country and a heavenly one. It's better in every way. And if the big defining thing about this country, I don't mean America, but this age and this world in which we live is death, that it comes to an end for all of us, whatever and how much you enjoy here, we're all headed to that same end, then that next one is better in every way and it's not marked by an end at all, but by life and more life and more more life. It's future, it's familiar, it's forever. It is firm. As it is, they desire a better country. And God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. He has prepared it. This is a city whose foundations and designer and builder is God. We're pretty good at building houses these days. Uh, We have great materials. We have plenty of trial and error. 
There are good regulations in place to make sure we aren't scammed in the construction of a house or allowed to scam others, for the most part, I suppose. All kinds of winds can come through and our houses stand and they stand up over many years. But sometimes I have this morbid thought sitting in my house and I think, what will be happening right here in 200 years? Will it be this house? Could this thing stand up? Uh, How many houses will be replaced? I don't know. It's a thought experiment. It's almost useless, except in a moment like this. The things that we build, as well as we build them, will only last so long, only last through so much. Oh, heaven will last forever. Its foundations are firm. God is the builder and the designer. He's the architect. Not only is it firm, but it is full. It's a city. It's a country. There's not just room for you, but for all of those who have faith in Jesus. All of God's people together. That's the picture. So, five words to consider what heaven is like. What is it like? Well, it's in the future. It's familiar. It's forever. It's firm. And it's full. But importantly, how do we get there? By working hard by having the right last name, the right degrees, by being a good citizen on the right side of important and consequential cultural issues, we want to be. No, the refrain, the repeated refrain in this chapter is that we lay hold of this future by faith, by believing the promises of God concerning this future We said last week that this faith isn't transactional like some type of work or thing or, or, or money that we bring to the table in exchange for heaven, like you work and get a paycheck. The Apostle Paul uses this illustration to sharpen this very point. It's instrumental, rather. For example, like your faith might be in a surgeon. Well, who, who fixed you up and saved you? Well, it wasn't you. You trusted the surgeon and went to sleep. Like a chair. Well, who holds you up? Well, you didn't. The chair did. But you, you believed in the chair. Like a driver in a car. Who got you to your destination? Well, you just sat there, but you got in the car. You believed in the driver. Oh, our driver, our surgeon, our leader, our holder up. Our holder He gets all the credit for this. Faith is not a work that we bring. It is a way of seeing the one who works for us. Well, if last week our focus was on what we have received, a heavenly condemnation, commendation, then this week, in these characters, our emphasis and focus is on what we perceive by faith, that heavenly country. There are other sermons for getting all the way in and through each of these characters' stories, but like a rock, we will just skip through the story of the life of Abraham and his kids. We begin with Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah, who were as good as dead. If you want to remember them that way, you could remember them as good as dead. That's, of course, not where their story ends. Theirs is a story of promise and improbability. Or maybe better, promise and impossibility. 
For example, an impossible place to get to. Verses 8 through 10. Abraham was minding his own business figuratively and literally. Figuratively, he was not looking for God. He was not worshiping God. He had the Lord not on his mind one bit. In fact, he was worshiping idols that he had crafted, that his people had crafted after the likeness of of man. He was an idol worshiper, and God called him, and God had come to him. Literally, he was minding his own business because the guy had a business. He had business in Ur. He had family business. He had business business. He had roots in his hometown, his home country, his home in this world. He was minding his own business, and God called him. He was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And Genesis chapter 12 is where that is found if you were to go looking. The place was unspecified initially. He went out, he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out. Good for him, because an inheritance sounds great. And maybe the, the pictures that he was shown and the architectural sketches and the plot was all measured just right and very convincing and very appealing and worth leaving home for. Not at all. He went out not knowing where he was going. It wouldn't work to plan a vacation like that in my family. Uh, not at all. Let's just go, babe. Let's just go. Let's go west. Let's go south. Maybe Florida. Uh, there's no guessing. It's all planned out. We're not going anywhere. So it is when you're moving across the country or the world or anywhere or across town. There's a good plan. And there ought to be a good plan. In this case, he made the sell to his wife. And they went. He went. The place was initially unspecified. But it didn't get, it wasn't more helpful when it became more clear where he was going. For that place that was formerly unspecified was occupied. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. Oh, great. In a foreign land. That's how it's described. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Good luck getting your wife to move with you to a foreign land in a tent. He did it. He went out, and he went out to live in that land of promise. And why did he do that? For he was looking forward, verse 10. He was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That's why he went. He was convinced concerning the word of God about his future. And by faith, he went out... And lived in tents, a foreigner in that land. A picture of our life in this age as those who have entrusted ourselves to Jesus. An impossible place to get to, but he went out. An impossible picture to imagine, verses 11 through 12. A family picture. Family pictures were relatively easy for Abraham and Sarah. It was the two of them. They wanted children. They didn't come. Some of you know that firsthand. 
It's a great and grievous uh, loss uh, that is unseen, that you know, that brothers and sisters in your church understand. We care for you. Uh, They end up having plenty of children, and it's worth saying at the head here, don't let anyone say, all you have to do is have faith, and therefore you will have children. Abraham and Sarah received a very specific promise from God. We do not receive specific promises from God concerning our livelihood or, or number of children or anything like that in this life. We receive very great promises from God that are way down the road, and so did they, actually. But theirs included a child. Their family picture, very hard to imagine, in the way that this is written, emphasizes why. Sarah was up in age, she was past age. Abraham, it says, was as good as dead. I'm just thinking the author of Hebrews writing this. He he needs to use this rhetorically provocative phrase that he's come up with. He saved it on a post-it note, I'll do that. I've got a little yellow post-it note with some bonus things if they come out. Uh, Where can I place this? Well, I'm not going to say that about Sarah. Uh, We'll say that about Abraham. She was past age. It's enough. Uh, He, Abraham, he was as good as dead. Both of them were fairly old. Neither of them were producing children in any human, human, merely human way. That's a thought on the family picture. Then God took Abraham outside. You can turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis, that first chapter in the book of the Bible. We see here Abraham, whose name was Abram at the time, uh, struggling with this promise, which he'd been given years earlier, speaking with God about it. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, "Uh, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my own household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And then he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars. And if you're able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur to give you this land to possess. He said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And then we get into that scene where the pieces are cut and God promises unilaterally to see that it happens. Let's flip back to the book of Hebrews 11 where we were. God has given them a family picture, which is to include a son and many descendants, and Abram has had a hard time believing that. In fact, we can take encouragement from this, because as we read through this story, excuse me, the whole chapter of 11, we might be inclined to think, 
oh, he's offering up all these examples of such great faith, but not me. And what was supposed to be encouraging for the Christian readers, who still wrestled with sin and, and were not completely complete in their redemption yet, uh, there were Christians like us, would read this and perhaps be discouraged. Well, by not mentioning here that Abram struggled to believe at times, our author isn't skirting over that. It just doesn't need to be said. In fact, the way that he commends Abram for his faith ought to be an encouragement for all of us. Abraham had quite a story, and Sarah. There was lying that went on when they were down in Egypt to save their skin. There was laughing that went on, Sarah laughing at the thought of God giving her a child in her old age. There was laying around that went on as they schemed a plan with Hagar, a servant, to create a child, trying to muscle out and and create by their own human ingenuity an answer to the promises of God because it seemed unreasonable that he could fulfill them given their circumstances. And the Lord was apparently patient with them, and in the end they're commended for their faith. And so I think we can identify, at least I can. Well, Sarah, she believed. She considered, verse 11, him faithful who had promised. She received power to conceive even when she was past age since she considered him faithful who'd promised. So it's not just that faith looks forward to God's promise and the things that he said. Because there won't be any strength to hold on to that promise if we aren't holding on to the God who has made the promise and considering him faithful to keep it. Faithful and able to keep it. So faith sees God and the promise that he has made in the future. And here she received a first installment of his promise made to Abraham. For she believed. Abraham couldn't see where he was going and the Lord led him. In Sarah's case, she, in her best moments, was able to see you and me. Able to see descendants from her and her husband as innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. And here you and I are believing in that greater son of Abraham, her offspring, for salvation and for heaven. Proof that she, she was right and that her faith was well placed, as ours is too. An impossible place to get to, an impossible picture to imagine, and an impossible position to be in, verse 17. This is an impossible position to be in. Abraham offering up Isaac, who had received the promises in the act of offering his only son, the one of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Their son they named Isaac, which means laughter. Uh, 
she'd laughed when she heard of the promise. So when she was pregnant and had that baby, they named him Laughter, the miracle child. The only son, now they had Ishmael, but that wasn't how God was going to do it. No, quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's the promise. And God had come to Abraham to instruct him to go up and offer his son Isaac on the mountain as an offering to God. So fit that together. It's not through another son. It's not like God's going to provide another son. It's through this son that all these promises will come. And yet he's supposed to kill this son. God, having spoken directly to Abraham with a specific promise, very unique situation. None of us are to do this, no matter our mood. Now, he didn't want to do this. He goes up the mountain in obedience to God. How and why? Well, we know why he went out. We know why Sarah and how she conceived. Why did he lift the knife? He was in the act of offering up his son. Verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, that's exactly what happened. Sarah considered that God was faithful to keep his promise. Abraham considered that God was able to keep his promise, even if his son was offered. Remarkable. And God has provided children for them, land for them, and a substitute for, for Isaac. Well, some conclusions from these portions of the passage we've read so far. First, conclusions concerning faith and works. Faith is not a work. Uh, could it be more clear that God is the worker? He calls, he provides, he He gives life from the dead in in her womb. He figuratively brings Isaac back from the dead. He is actively working to save. And Abram and Sarah's part is to believe his promise by faith. Nevertheless, faith is does work. It is hard to escape the voluminous activity and action of Abraham and Sarah and the things that they do by faith. It is not just that Abraham obeyed or that Abraham offered up Isaac or that Abraham went out. It is that by faith, he and she did these things. Which is to say that without faith, these actions would not have pleased God or been commendable in his sight. Which is to say that merely being good and externally obedient is not pleasing to God. No one receives his commendation through going to church or doing right and not doing wrong. It's better to do right than to do wrong. We all want to work with folks who are honest. It's a better world for it. 
But none of us are made right with God by works, but by faith. And faith that saves is faith that walks with God, that works in obedience to God, albeit imperfectly, but nevertheless, you can see it with time. Those are some reflections on faith and works. Now, faith and waiting. Abraham and Sarah, it's hard to tell from the page, but there are a lot of years that transpire here. And the patience that you can feel through the story of Genesis is palpable. Long years of waiting. And so faith is for us a matter that leads us to wait. The Christian life, we could say, is a life of faith and a life of waiting on God by faith. Now, let's move into our second string of characters. Verses 21 through 22. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, also as good as dead. So that's what we're going to title this one. This is three children, a son, grandson, and great-grandson of Abraham and Sarah. We get a sentence per. That's not a lot. Each sentence-long vignette we get is from the very end of their lives. Funerals are important, friends. Two funerals this week in our church family, not from members who passed into glory, but family members of members. Uh, Charlie Lyons, Luke Lyons' father, passed away. The funeral was at Trinity Bible earlier this week. And Russell, brother to Christine Donnelly, his funeral was yesterday. It's good to be at funerals. You can't make them all, but pay attention and show up for them. And certainly where we have a believer who's died in the faith, you will hear testimonies of their faith. And our sister, Christine, she is not well herself. And I visited with her, spoke emphatically and clearly, even joyfully, even through her own suffering of the faith of her brother, commending God as faithful and worth believing all the way until the end, and saying, I hope that in this funeral, you are encouraged to stay with the Lord, all of you. Those are good words. Those are words from faith. Funerals are great events to be at. Here, we arrive just in their last days, all three of them. Isaac. A man who did not see well at the end, except for one thing. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. There's quite a story here. Isaac and Rebekah were pregnant, twins. The Lord had revealed to Rebekah that the younger would receive the blessing. God's purposes would be routed through the younger of the two, counterintuitively to how we would usually do things. 
Isaac, he was a fan of Jacob. So maybe you've got two boys, men, and you love them the same. But you were a baseball player, and one of, them, one of them's big into baseball, and the next one's into art, and you weren't much of an artist. Isaac really liked Jacob's game. Isaac really liked Jacob's hunting, the food that he would bring back. He loved it. The future is with hunting and that great food, and the blessing is going to Jacob. But in his old age, unable to see, and of a weak mind, Rebecca and excuse me, he wanted it to go to Esau. Rebecca and Jacob scheme to trick Isaac into blessing Jacob instead of Esau. Esau, who is out hunting, is a really hairy guy. So Jacob puts some, with his mom's help, some, some animal fur on him. And uh, so he goes in, smells like game. Mom has cooked some food. And he gives Jacob the blessing he meant to give to Esau. And through the trickery of the wife, in the context of Isaac's failure of faith, frankly, he ends up blessing Jacob, the one God said would be blessed. This is the Genesis story. All that's there. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Why should he get credit for that? He was tricked into doing it. When Esau cries out, when he returns home and realizes what happens, that his crafty brother has stolen his blessing, Jacob considers it done. Excuse me, Isaac considers it done. We can take from that that, well, it was done, but also that he understood what the Lord just did and got in line. Yes, that's what the Lord promised. And in spite of me, the blessing will go through Jacob. And so, that's all the faith he needed to get this commendation. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Right at the end of life, he finished well. Not that great moments earlier. Now Jacob. Jacob ran out of tricks and found God at the end of himself. Jacob was a trickster his whole life. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Sounds like a super godly guy. Kind of not all the time, folks. He tricked his uncle Laban out of flocks so he could get rich, basically stealing from his uncle to build his own fortune. Not a good look. It's right there in the Bible. All the readers know this about this story. And eventually the Lord wrestled him down into submission. And he did submit. And here this picture at the end of his life of blessing each of his sons. This is blessing his sons with a view to what God would do down the road. The people were now in Egypt. The future was uncertain, humanly speaking. But he was believing God's promise to his father Abraham, passed down now to him. That he would work through the family. 
and bless the nations of the earth through them. And this bowering over the head of his staff is what he did as he gave direction concerning where he was to be buried. He wanted to be buried in the land of Canaan. And bowing his head over a staff in worship is even a good picture of the Christian and the Christian life at the end. At the end of a sojourn, an exile's journey with a staff, tired, aged, aching, worn out, not just physically, but in every way from life in this world, but bowing over the staff in worship of his God, looking forward to the promises of God and instructing that his body be buried in Canaan. That's a very good look. And then we have Joseph. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the Exodus and the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Joseph's the man whose greatest achievement was to pick his burial spot. Joseph, exalted in Egypt, against all odds and much opposition. The story makes no sense, except that God's hand was in it, and he saw God's hand in it. Entrusted with the administration of all of Egypt. The reason... His small family would be rescued from famine. And it doesn't go to his head. Oh, he may have had a big head when he was his dad's favorite wearing that coat and boasting to his brothers back in the day. But by the end, that appears mostly, if not all, to be burned off. He loves his brother and he loves his father. He loves the brothers who even, for all intents and purposes, intended to see him killed, thrown into a pit, then sold into bondage and sent away. They even said he was dead and were happy that he was gone. No, but Joseph sees God in all of his misfortune. Even more incredibly, he sees God in all of his fortune. Sometimes it's harder to see God in our fortune because things are just going so great. And frankly, I can kind of see how it all happened and I kind of deserve credit for it. But both in his misfortune and his fortune, Joseph saw the Lord in it. And by faith, at the end of his own life, a life of great achievements, having earned the trust of leaders and the responsibility of the nation and great riches as one entrusted with that responsibility. There at the end of his life, he is counting on being buried outside of Egypt, but in the land of Canaan. What an act of faith. The author of Hebrews picks it up. Yes, he's keeping things simple by unifying that part of the story with each man's words upon death. But it's also a great place to see how faith has endured, isn't it? What we're saying at the end. That's why it's good not just to be at funerals, And this is not to be a morbid thought, but this is why it's good for us to be mixed up generationally, to have meaningful friendships with brothers and sisters nearer the end of life so we can hear how they're talking because we're going to be there too. 
and those near the end of life who wish they had greater faith to say as much and receive encouragement from those that are younger and going through their own hardships. Plenty of us who are younger have been through a whole lifetime of trouble. We all need each other. Well, here at the end of their lives, faith is on their lips because they are seeing the God of heaven and they are looking forward to a heavenly country. A heavenly country that is future, yes, but familiar, more familiar and more at home for them than this age. That is forever, that is firm, and that will be full with God's people. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we give you thanks for these examples of faith. And we give you thanks that these examples are more complicated than the simple sentences that summarize their best moments. Because our faith is more complicated than the simple sentences that summarize our best moments. We mean to live and work out our faith, but our faith wavers. And so we thank you that an encouragement from this passage is that while our faith may waver and falter and not look so impressive at times, that if we have not lost it, then this heavenly reward remains ours. We thank you for commending us as righteous by faith, and we eagerly long for the day when we will receive our heavenly reward. Help us now to follow Jesus with our whole lives, entrusting ourselves to him as he entrusted himself to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.